Welcome to this Uvula audio production of Smuggler's Reef by John Blaine. Volume 6, Chapter 12 The Missing Fisherman Captain Jim Killian, the fisherman who had been closest to Brad Marbeck and Tom Tyler, and who might have been able to say finally whether Rick's theory was true or not, was missing. Captain, are you sure? Rick asked. Captain Mike nodded soberly. Sure as I can be. That's why I had to talk to you boys. When did you discover he disappeared? You said he'd been visiting his mother, Scotty queried. That's just it. Took me all this time to remember. Captain Mike shook his white head. Reckon I'm getting old. His mate said he'd gone to visit his mother, so I thought no more about it. Until this morning. Then I remembered Jim Killian never knew his mother. He was brought up by an uncle and an aunt, both of them dead now ten years. Struck me all of a sudden, like. It had sort of been nagging at the back of me head that something was fishy about that mate's story. So this morning I went to his house and I collared him. Did you get anything out of him? Rick asked eagerly. Not much. Jim Killian showed up at his trawler the morning after Tom Tyler wrecked the sea bell. He just told the mate to shove off without him, and said, if anybody asked, he was visiting his mother, who was sick. And I'm sure that's all the mate knows, except that he knew Jim Killian didn't have a mother. Rick pursed his lips thoughtfully. He showed up himself. Well, then he must have left of his own free will. At least he wasn't kidnapped, but... Why would he run? His eyes met Scotty's, and he knew what his pal was thinking. He was threatened, Scotty said. Looks like it. Suppose he let a word drop that night about something being a little off the beam of Smuggler's Light. It sounded reasonable to Rick. The Kelsos would have paid him a visit for sure. Captain Mike wagged his head sadly. I sure pinned a lot of hope on Jim Killian. After you explained what might have happened to Tom, I was sure Jim might have something real useful to add. But it looks mighty bad now. Yeah, mighty bad, Rick agreed. Their effort to catch the Kelsos red-handed had boomeranged on them, and now what might be proof of their theory had vanished. We better find him, Scotty said. How? Captain Mike asked hopelessly. We can't go to the police because Jim went off of his own free will, which he has a perfect right to do. For a moment, Rick was about to suggest that they could have the police hunt him as a material witness, then he rejected the idea. Witness to what? Tom Tyler had admitted running the sea bell onto the reef purposely, or at least the next thing to it. 
No, the only solution was to find Captain Killian. But where would they begin? Put yourself in his place, he suggested to Captain Mike. You've known him a long time. If you were hiding out, where would you go? I've thought about it. Don't do no good. This is the first time Jim Killian has left the town in twenty years, except to go to Newark or New York for a day of shopping. Where did he live? Little Cape Cod Cottage over near Tom Tyler. Lived by himself. We could start there. As good a place as any, Captain Mike agreed. Let's get going. Rick shook his head. We have to wait for Jerry. Let's sit in the car. I don't think the hearing will last for very much longer. Tom Tyler was pleading guilty. They walked to Jerry's car and settled down to wait. Through the windshield, Rick watched the town folk cluster around the courthouse steps. He noted that they weren't talking very much. He guessed everyone in town knew there was something extraordinary about the wreck of the sea bell, and he wondered if anybody suspected smuggling activities at Creek House. He said aloud, If the Kelsos and Brad Marbeck took the stuff up to Salt Creek Bridge before we got there, what boat did they use? The boat we saw in the boathouse was dry, and the boats on the Albatross were all hanging on their davits. Maybe we're all wet on this, too. Maybe, Scotty agreed glumly. I've never seen a deal with so many dead ends. Captain Mike sounded alarmed. You're not giving up, are you, boys? Not a chance. We'll get to the bottom of this sooner or later. Scotty spoke for both of them. Captain Mike pointed. The crowd's coming out. Evidently, the hearing was over, because those who had waited inside the building and those lucky enough to get seats were coming out. Presently, Jerry Webster came out, too, tucking his notes into his jacket pocket. He joined them in the car and greeted Captain Mike. You look like three mourners, he told them. What's the problem? Rick explained briefly and then asked, Do you have any bright ideas? I'm afraid not, Jerry replied. Finding somebody is a tough job, even for the police, with all their facilities. I don't know where you'd even start. We thought of looking his house over, Rick said. I wouldn't do that, Jerry replied quickly. Why not? You said he left of his own accord, didn't you? You could bet he locked the house up tight. You try to get in there, you'll be guilty of breaking and entering. Even if he left a door open, you've got no right to be there. You can bet the neighbors will be on the phone to the constable's office if they see anybody fooling around in that house. Oh, you're right, Rick agreed gloomily. There goes his mate now, Captain Mike said. Must have been at the hearing. He pointed to a slender man in a cap and a lumberjack shirt who was crossing the street in front of the town hall. Do you think he told you all he knows? Rick asked. Captain Mike rubbed his chin thoughtfully. I don't know. Maybe he did, and again, maybe not. Chick's a quiet one. Never says much. There's no way of telling what goes on in that head of his. Well, let's follow him, Scotty suggested. Jerry looked at him. What for? For lack of anything else to do, Scotty said. We've nothing to lose anyway. Rick watched the mate reach the opposite sidewalk, and then stand uncertainly for a moment, looking back across the street. Then, evidently satisfied, he started off at a brisk walk. 
It was almost as though he had looked to see if anyone was coming after him. Rick noticed this. Scotty's right, he said quickly. Let's go after him. Jerry started the car and pulled away from the curb. He grinned at Rick. Good thing it's Saturday. No paper until Monday morning. So I've got plenty of time. Tell me what to do. I'm green at this business. Go slow, Rick said. Watch him. The mate reached a corner, looked behind him, then turned down the side street. Go after him, Rick directed. Go run on by and don't let anyone look at him. Captain, better crouch down. He knows you, but he doesn't know the rest of us. Jerry swung into the side street and picked up speed. From the corner of his eye, Rick saw the mate walking rapidly. He told Jerry to turn right at the next corner and to slow down. The blocks were short. The mate would pass the corner in a moment. Do you know where he lives? Rick asked the captain. Not on this side of town. He lives out in the district toward the main road. Do you have any guesses where he may be heading? Maybe Jake's Grill. It's this way, and I've seen him there. Rick directed Jerry to go to the next corner and wait. Then he turned and watched the corner they had just passed. If the mate kept straight on the side street, they would go around the block. If he turned down the street they had taken, they would simply round the corner again. The mate turned and came after them. Around the corner, Rick directed. Captain, where's Jake's grill? If you turned left instead of right just then, Captain Mike replied as Jerry finished his turn. You'd have been about at it. It's halfway down that block. Rick made a quick decision. Okay, here's where we split up. I'll get out and go to Jake's. The rest of you keep trailing him. If he goes into Jake's, turn around and park at the next corner where you can see the entrance. If he doesn't, follow him and pick me up later. As they nodded assent, he got out of the car and waved Jerry on. Then he walked swiftly in the opposite direction. He crossed the street from which they had just turned and caught a glimpse of the mate in the corner of his eye. The man was still walking rapidly. Rick paid no attention to him. He walked at a moderate pace down the street, pausing once to look in a shop window. A side glance showed him the mate still coming. Rick resumed the walking and came to Jake's Grill, a shabby sort of place with only a half dozen customers. He walked in without hesitation and took a seat at the counter. The counterman came up and wiped the counter clean in front of him with a rag that might have been white once upon a time. What'll it be? Coffee, Rick said. He was in a good position because the back of the counter was lined with a fly-specked mirror through which he could see the whole restaurant. The mate pushed the door open and paused at the entrance. He reached into his pocket and brought out a crumpled handful of bills and some change. He counted the change and then searched his pocket for more. There was none. He started for the counter. He must need more change. For what? Rick's quick survey of the place showed him a phone booth in one corner. Quickly, as the mate approached, he fished out a dollar and thrust it at the counterman. Got any change? I have to make a phone call. The counterman took the bill and walked to the cash register. The mate cast a quick glance at Rick, then called. Sam, I need some change, too. Give me some nickels and dimes for this half buck. He tossed a 50-cent piece on the counter. Rick relaxed. Perhaps some of the town folk had seen his and Scotty's pictures in the paper, but evidently the mate wasn't one of them. There had been no recognition in the man's eyes. 
The counterman handed Rick a dollar in change and gave the mate some smaller change. He winked. Gotta call your girl, chick? Sure have, the mate answered. He had an odd voice, as though his nasal passages were completely blocked with a bad cold. He looked at Rick. Go ahead, kid. Make your call. After you, sir, Rick said politely. I'm in no hurry. Thanks. The mate walked to the booth and shut himself in. Rick got up and wandered casually in that direction. His ears cocked for the mate's words. Unfortunately, the booth was tight. He could hear only a faint murmur. He went back to the counter and started sipping his coffee, keeping his eyes on the booth. He heard the dim tone of bells and his pulse quickened. Those were coins dropping into the slots. The mate was making an out-of-town call. If only he could hear it. The hot coffee was almost scalding, but he scarcely noticed. His mind was racing, searching for some way to overhear that conversation. There just wasn't any way, though. If he walked over and just put his ear to the booth, the men sitting at the tables and farther up the counter would see. No, he was sunk this time. Within four minutes, the mate was out of the booth. He came over and took a seat at the counter a few stools up and nodded at Rick. Thanks, boy. That's all right, Rick said. He had to make a pretense of phoning. Well, he could call Spindrift, tell his mother that they would be home for lunch. He hadn't been sure how long the hearing would take when they left. He went to the booth and closed the door. The phone had no dial. Evidently, Seaford, like Whiteside, had no dial system. He started to pick up the receiver, and inspiration struck him. If he could imitate the mate... He tried to imitate Chick's nasal tone and thought he did pretty well. He tried again, and it sounded a little better. Anyway, he thought, there was nothing to lose by trying. The Seaford had more than one operator on the switchboard, which was unlikely because of the size of the town. It wouldn't work anyway. Or if there were two and he got the wrong one, it wouldn't work. His hand shook slightly as he lifted the receiver and dropped in a nickel. Number, please. Rick struggled to imitate the mate's voice. Say, I have to talk to that number again. Something I forgot to say. What number was that, sir? The operator asked. Rick took a chance based on the number of bells he had heard. That New York number. Forget now what it is. Ain't you got it written down there? I'll have to have the number, sir, the operator said with firm sweetness. Rick grew desperate. Shucks, lady, he whined nasally. You ain't gonna make me go through that business with that information gal again, are you? There was a subdued tickle of laughter. All right, I'll find it for you. There was a brief pause. That number is Cornish 93834. Write it down this time. I sure will. He almost forgot and laughed back into his own voice. But he didn't have to write it down. He wasn't forgetting it. What is your number, please? He gave it and then waited anxiously. In a moment, the voice said, Garden View Hotel. The operator spoke. One moment, please. Please deposit 30 cents. Rick did so, and the bells clanged in his ear. When the ringing stopped, he said briskly, Mr. James Killian, please. Just a minute. Then... No one registered here by that name. Isn't this the Garden Arms Apartments? No, this is the Garden View Hotel, 
You have the wrong number. Oh, sorry, Rick said jubilantly and hung up. He walked to the counter and gulped his coffee, put a dime on the counter, then hurried to the door. The mate was eating a piece of pie. On the street, Rick looked for Jerry's car and spotted it at a corner two blocks away. He walked rapidly toward it, waving as he did so. The car pulled away from the curb and sped toward him, and he motioned to Jerry to turn the next corner. He hurried and got there just as the car did. Any luck? Scotty asked. Luck? Touch me, somebody. Listen to this. Captain Killian is at the Garden View Hotel in New York, registered under a phony name. He told them quickly what happened in the grill and finished. I'll bet the mate had orders to phone right after the hearing and let Killian know what happened to Tyler. He was handed over to the constable after the insurance company issued a complaint, Jerry said. I think I forgot to tell you that. Well, now we know where this missing captain is. Now what? Now what? What do you think? Rick asked indignantly. Let's go to New York. Chapter 13 The Tracker We could drop your pictures off at the office. Then I'll drive you to New York if that's okay, Jerry remarked as the car sped up the road to Whiteside. That'll be fine. Rick said. I'll phone Spindrift, too, and let Mom know we won't be home for lunch. We can pick up a hamburger at a road stand on the way up there. Jerry slowed down to a more moderate pace, and Rick looked at him in surprise. I thought we were in a hurry. I'm trying something, Jerry said. His eyes were on the rearview mirror, and after a moment he spoke. The car behind us slowed down, too. I think he's following us. Captain Mike started to look back, but Scotty said warningly, Don't do that. If they're really following, we don't want them to know that they've been spotted. Well, there's a curve up ahead, Jerry, Rick said. Keep your eyes on that car as we round the curve, and let me know when they're out of sight. All right. The curve loomed, and Jerry took it smoothly, and then glanced up at the mirror. Now, he said. Rick reached up and readjusted the mirror so that he could see then settled back. In a few seconds, the other car was in sight, too far back for him to see the figures on the license plate, but not so far back that he couldn't see clearly that the plate was from New York State, or that the car was the same make and model as the one they had seen in Kelso's garage. Reflection of light on the windshield made the occupant hazy, but Rick had a pretty good idea who it was. It looks like Kelso's car, he told the others. Listen, Jerry, don't go to the paper. Drop us off in front of Dean's department store, then go around the block, and go slowly to give us time to find out who this bird is. No, no, I've got a better idea. Park the car. He'll have to park his if he intends to follow us. Jerry nodded agreement. There's a parking lot next to the store. I'll swing in there. Captain Mike was grinning from ear to ear. I'll be dad blamed if this ain't just like something I read once. I knew if I got you too interested, we'd have some excitement. Jerry chuckled. What do you think I want to take them into New York for? I usually go swimming on Saturday afternoon. They were on the outskirts of Whiteside now. Jerry slowed his speed again, and three minutes later he swung into the parking lot next to Dean's, in the busiest part of town. 
Through the rearview mirror, Rick saw the other car go by, heading for a vacant space at the curb that he had noticed a half a block down. The four got out of the car and Jerry took the parking check from the attendant. Now what? he asked. We walk down the street, Rick directed. And if we haven't spotted him by the time we get to Mark's supermarket, we'll go into the store. It has two entrances. If we split up, he'd get confused. We'd lose him easy, Jerry suggested. Then we could meet up somewhere. Amateur, Scotty scoffed. We don't want to lose him. We want to find out who he is. Rick and Scotty led the way, Captain Mike and Jerry following. As they passed the parked car, Rick saw the license plate clearly. It was the one he had spotted at the Kelsos. Probably carrots or red, he thought. Maybe it was both of them. Without seeming to look around, he noted every possible hiding place where the tracker might wait for them, and decided on the doorway of an office building. There were a half dozen pillars the tracker could use for cover. He waited until they were a half block down from the building. Then he turned suddenly, as though to speak to the two behind. Scotty, whose mind worked much the same way, turned at about the same time. Rick got a quick glimpse of a stocky youth with carrot hair dodging into a doorway. He stopped and said, Don't look back. I've got him spotted. Let's go into Mark's and we'll figure out how to get rid of him. It's carrots, Scotty said gleefully. We'll have to think of something real cute for our little friend there. More like a little fiend, Rick corrected. They turned into the supermarket and mingled with the shoppers. Rick led the way behind a counter stacked high with cereals where they couldn't be seen. Well, the meeting is open to suggestions. We can shake him with no trouble at all, Rick said. But that's too good for him. Any ideas? We can lead him on a wild goose chase, Jerry offered. Scotty had a grin on his face that boded ill for Carrots Kelso. I got one. I saw it pulled once. Jerry, do you suppose Mildred is in the office? Mildred Clark, the older sister of one of Barbie Brandt's closest friends, was the newspaper's bookkeeper. She had been a visitor at Spindrift several times, accompanying her swimming parties. Jerry looked at his watch. It's Saturday afternoon, and she doesn't usually work then, but we're getting out our monthly statements, so she's probably there now. Swell. Now how well do you know the cop on this beat? We're good friends. I gave him a plug in the paper once. He deserved it, too, but he thinks I did it out of the goodness of my heart. Scotty's grin widened. He lowered his voice and rapidly sketched the part each was to play. As he talked, Rick, too, began to grin. When Scotty had finished, Rick and Captain Mike sauntered to the front of the store. Rick glanced through the big plate glass windows but saw no sign of carrots. That didn't really mean anything, because Carrots would be a complete cabbage head to let himself be seen. Rick was sure he was watching. He and Captain Mike stood there talking for a moment. Then Scotty appeared beside them and said, Well, here goes. Jerry's on the phone now. And he faded into the crowd again. Rick let five minutes elapse while he and the captain stood in plain sight. Then he glanced at his watch and motioned to the old seaman. The two of them went out the front of the store. Long before this, Scotty and Jerry had gone through the side entrance that opened on another street. Rick waited in front of the store, glancing in now and then, and trying to act impatient. Then he and the captain started up Main Street at a slow walk. If everything was working out, Carrots would have chosen to follow them 
rather than to wait at the store for Scotty and Jerry. That was what Rick would have done at his place. He had a hunch Carrots had picked them up in Seaford and had followed them largely because of Captain Mike's presence. It was entirely possible that the Kelsos were equally anxious to know of Captain Killian's whereabouts, or perhaps they were just interested in seeing if Captain Mike knew where he was. As they passed Dean's department store, Rick glanced into the doorway and saw Mildred Clark. He breathed a little easier. The others had made it on time. And coming down the street toward him was the policeman, who always patrolled this beat. Although he knew Rick well, he made no sign of that. They neared the entrance of the parking lot, and Jerry motioned from behind a car. He was peering down the street behind them. Watch this, he said gleefully, and stepped into plain view. Rick whirled just as Karis Kelso came abreast of Dean's doorway. Mildred stepped out ahead of him. She was a slender, attractive girl, and a good actress, as it proved. She was pulling on gloves, and as is usually the case while doing so, she had her purse tucked under her arm. She and Karis were only a yard apart when Scotty appeared from the doorway. He took a long step past Karis, snatched Mildred's purse from under her arm, whirled, and handed it to the astonished redhead. Karis' reaction was perfect. He took the purse, stupidly, and stood there with his mouth open. Scotty vanished back into the doorway. Mildred screamed. Karis saw immediately that he was being framed. He turned to run, but forgot to let go of the purse. Mildred screamed again, and Karis sprinted headlong into Duke Barrows. Duke held him for the moment it took for the policeman to arrive. It was too good to miss. Rick, Jerry, and the captain walked back down the street toward the confusion, trying hard to conceal their mirth. Mildred pointed at the purse that Carrot still clutched. That, she proclaimed dramatically, is my purse. I didn't take it, Carrots yelled. Somebody handed it to me. The officer scowled. A likely story, unless you had a confederate. So where is he? Quite a crowd was gathering now. Mildred turned convincingly faint, and Duke had to prop her up. Rick's face was scarlet from choking back laughter, because he was sure Carrots would burst from sheer anger at any moment. Then Carrots saw him. You! he screamed and jerked the policeman's arm. There he is! That's one of them! His friend took my... I mean, it was... I mean, it was his friend who... The officer interrupted. Do you know this boy? he asked Rick. Rick shook his head, face solemn. I've never seen him before in my life, he said calmly. Jerry spoke in a stage whisper that could have been heard a block away. A perfect criminal type, if I ever saw one. Captain Mike choked and had to turn away. Rick nudged Jerry, and they turned and walked rapidly back to the parking lot. It was time to get going. Scotty was standing by the car, grinning broadly. Captain Mike was weak from laughter. You know, I've heard the word ham used for actors, but I never got the full meaning until now. I never saw such bad acting in all my life, except for the girl. She was almost convincing. Let's get out our way, Rick said, and laughter bubbled up as they got into the car. As they pulled out into traffic, they saw Carrots being frog-marched up the street toward the police station, Duke and Mildred walking behind him and the policeman. Duke phoned the chief from the paper, Jerry said. 
They'll go through all the motions of booking carrots and taking his picture. They'll even throw him in a cell for a while. When he quiets down, the chief will go down and talk to him like a father and point out that crime doesn't pay, and then he'll let him go with a warning. Scotty sobered. Worked like a charm. But Rick, old egg, from now on, you and I had better stay away from the front end of Carrot's little air gun. Chapter 14 Captain Killian Jerry turned down the street and looked around him doubtfully. I don't know what a fancy hotel will be doing in this neighborhood, Rick. We don't know how fancy it is, Rick returned. It just has a fancy name. But keep going. We should get to it soon. You see any numbers? They had stopped and found the address in a telephone book as soon as they had crossed the river into New York through the Holland Tunnel. As Jerry pointed out, it wasn't a likely neighborhood in which to find a hotel. It seemed to be mostly manufacturing plants engaged in making gloves and ladies' clothes. I wonder how he happened to choose this location, Scotty asked. Probably just came into the city and walked down this way and went into the first hotel he saw, Captain Mike speculated. Man gets used to a fishing trawler. He's not going to ask for anything fancy by way of a hotel. Jerry and Rick had been scanning the numbers along the street. It's on your side, Rick said. Watch for it there. Jerry applied the brakes on the car slowed. That's got to be it, he said, pointing across the street. It wasn't exactly what Rick had expected. A tiny metal sign announced that this was the Garden View Hotel. It was set above a dingy doorway through which a flight of stairs could be seen. Where's the garden is supposed to have a view of? Scotty wanted to know. Rick motioned in the general direction of uptown. Probably Madison Square Garden. You can see it from here, if there weren't about 2,000 buildings in the way, including the Empire State Building. He was wondering if they had the right place. This calls for a small change in plans. On the way to New York, they had decided it would be easiest to give a bellhop a generous tip and have him locate Captain Killian for them. Bellhops usually knew every guest in a small hotel, and they suspected the garden view would be small simply because none of them had ever heard of it. You're right, Scotty agreed. A place like that wouldn't have a bellhop. Rick searched for an idea. You wouldn't know his signature on the register, would you, Captain? No, I've never seen him sign his name. Why couldn't one of us be a relative looking for him? Hey, that's an idea, Scotty exclaimed. We could pretend he's a little cracked and describe him. The clerk would know who we meant, and he'd probably be glad to tell us, because hotels don't like having people who might be a little bit off. Captain Mike could do it, Rick said. Captain, couldn't you pretend to be his brother? Of course I could. Well, what are we waiting for? Do I go in alone? No, I'll go in with you, Rick offered. Jerry and I had better wait here, then, Scotty said. Might look funny if the four of us came trooping in like a chowder and marching club. Jerry spoke up. That's okay, except don't forget I'm to talk to him if he has anything to say. Have to get an interview for the paper. We'll bring him down, Rick promised confidently. Come on, Captain, let's go. The stairs leading up into the hotel were creaky with age, and the accumulation of dust and dirt showed months without a broom. At the top of the stairs was what had once been a nice lobby, but now the rug was worn to strings, and the wallpaper had acquired a glaze of dirt 
that made it look like ancient newspapers. Behind the scarred ruin of an oak counter stood a clerk, so fat that Rick wondered how the floor could support him. He was reading a comic book, and it didn't even look up when they came in. Captain Mike addressed him politely. Excuse me there, sir. I wonder if you could help me. The tired eyes looked up from the comic book. Sure, what can I do for you? The words and tone were surprisingly courteous. I'm looking for me, brother, Captain Mike said. He's a man about my height, five years younger, and still a lot black in his hair. Red complexion, pretty well lined, smokes a corncob pipe. His real name is Killian, but I don't think you'd know that by him. He touched his head significantly. His mind is going. He thinks he's being persecuted. What makes you think he might be here? Captain Mike's expressive face assumed a look of infinite sadness. Once many years ago, he spent his honeymoon here, lost his wife shortly after that in an auto crash. But since his mind went, he won't believe she's dead, even though it was nigh on twenty years now. Poor soul keeps looking for her. We tried to keep him home, so he sneaks off and takes an assumed name. Found him here once before. When was that? The tone was suspicious. I've been here for five years myself. I don't remember anything like that. Oh, it was longer than that. Must have been over eight. He coughed apologetically. We've had him in an old seaman's home for a few years, but he wasn't happy there. Rick looked at Captain Mike with admiration. When it came to spinning a convincing yarn right off the cuff, so to speak, Captain Mike was a master. Rick hit a smile. What have the old man said about ham actors a little while back? The clerk was nodding slowly. Old seaman, is he? Well, that fits one of our guests. He looked at Captain Mike sharply. Sure it's all right? Who is this boy? Captain Mike put a hand on Rick's shoulder. Ah, sir, it's this boy's poor mother old Jim came here to find. Rick bowed his head and looked as sad as possible. He had to bow it anyway to conceal the grin that was forcing its way to the surface. What room is he in? Captain Mike asked tenderly. Poor old soul. I'll call him. The clerk went to the switchboard and plugged in a line, then pulled the toggle switch a couple of times. He picked up the phones and put them on. Mr. Jameson, your brother and son are down here to see you. Rick held his breath. The clerk unplugged the line and put the phone down. Says he'll be downstairs in a minute. He went back to his comic book. Rick and Captain Mike went over to his sofa and sat down. As they did, a little cloud of dust rose. The minutes ticked by. Rick fidgeted. He leaned over close to Captain Mike. What do you suppose is keeping him? I don't know. We'd better see. Captain Mike whispered back. He rose up and walked to the desk again. He's slow in coming, sir. I'm just wondering. Remember, I said he thought we were persecuting him. He may... Well, sir, I wonder if we could go up. There was a trace of alarm in the clerk's face. Maybe you better, he agreed. Room 410, three flights, two floors up. Rick and the captain hurried to the stairs and went up them two at a time. To Rick's surprise, the old man kept pace with him. On the fourth landing, they paused and looked up and down the shabby corridor. One door was open. 
Rick ran to it, and he looked at the number. It was 410. He rushed into the room, a tiny box with only a bed, a washstand, and a closet. It was empty. He flung the closet door open and saw a suitcase. He's gone, he called, and rushed back into the hall again. Captain Mike already was trying other doors. All of them were locked except the bath that was empty. Rick ran the other way to the end of the hall where a window stood open. Fire escape! He leaned far out of the window and looked down into a maze of back alleys. Then his searching eyes saw a figure scurrying through them, heading east. Captain, hurry downstairs. Tell Jerry to cut around the block. He's heading east, the same way the car is. I'll go after him. He swung a leg through the window and jumped to the fire escape as Captain Mike rushed for the stairs. Rick went down the open steel stairs as though he had wings. As he passed the second floor, he saw the clerk's mouth open to call. Rick didn't wait to see what he had to say. Perhaps he was trying to tell him Captain Killian had gone down too. The clerk would have seen him. The captain must have waited on the fire escape until they started up the stairs in order to avoid being seen through the window. The last flight was counterbalanced. He stepped on the stairs and they swung down with a faint groan. Then he was on the ground. He turned east and ran, leaping over fallen trash and barrels. He had a picture of the alleys in his mind, so he took all the right turns but one. That brought him to a dead end. He backtracked quickly and found the right way out. In a moment, he came out on the avenue. He stopped on the curb and looked both ways, spying Jerry's car on the uptown side, cruising along slowly. He started to call, then realized that Jerry couldn't hear him. Better to wait. If the car hadn't reached the avenue before Captain Killian, it was a good bet they had lost him. He scuffed his shoe on the curb disgustedly. Jerry swung into the next cross street, apparently with the intention of going completely around the block, and Rick saw a figure step out of a doorway the moment the coast was clear. The man fit the description that Captain Mike had given. Rick turned his back hurriedly and walked leisurely in the opposite direction. Then he turned into an alley between two buildings and peered out. Captain Killian was walking briskly uptown. Rick saw him turn right at the next corner, in the direction opposite from the one Jerry had taken. Once Killian was out of sight, Rick turned and ran uptown, crossing the avenue. At the corner, the seaman had turned. He slowed and looked around cautiously. It was a long block. The captain was about halfway down it. Rick debated. Jerry, if he had gone around the block, would appear on the avenue in a moment, probably one block farther up, since he wouldn't retrace the street in front of the hotel. Rick decided to take the chance. This part of town was almost deserted because it was late in the afternoon and few offices were open on Saturdays. They could spot Killian easily enough now that they knew which direction he had taken. He ran to the next corner and had to wait only a few seconds before Jerry's car appeared across the street. He put his fingers to his mouth and gave a piercing whistle. Jerry tooted the horn and shot across the avenue to him as the light turned green. Straight ahead, Rick said. With luck, we'll meet him at the corner, unless he turned downtown. The car roared through the narrow street to the next corner and stopped. Rick and Captain Mike piled out, and the captain went to meet the man who had stopped short at their sudden appearance. Howdy, Jim, he said. Captain Killian snorted. 
So it's you. Thought I recognised you through the window. What do you want? And how did you know where to find me? Captain Mike smiled. As to the second, I got some excellent spies working for me now, Jim. As to the first, you know right well what I want. You ain't going to get it, Mike O'Shannon. I didn't leave town from the health. I left for a good reason, and I'm going to stay lost. So get back to the car with them kids and get out of here. Otherwise, I reckon I'll have to yell for a cop. You won't do that, Captain Mike said shrewdly. If you wanted a cop, you could have caught one in Seaford. Come on, Jim, stop acting like you were the only one who knew anything. We know what you saw the night Tom was wrecked, and we know who did it. That stopped Captain Killian. He gave Captain Mike a penetrating look that abruptly said, Where can we talk? In the car. Captain Mike introduced the boys to Killian. Rick and Scotty figured out what must have happened to Tom Tyler. Tell him then, Rick. Rick outlined the theory quickly. Killian sat staring out the window. That's about it, he said finally. It must be. Maybe Bill Lake thought he'd lost the light and current set him over, but I was closer. Not close enough to see anything but the light, you understand. But I saw it blink out, and I looked down at the binnacle and held the same compass heading until it came on again, and it were a different place. If you said that in the hearing this morning, Tom Tyler might have been free right now, Captain Mike accused. Killian's back stiffened. I don't know what you're thinking, Mike, but if it weren't for Tom, I wouldn't be here. We'd like to hear about it, Captain Mike said. I may as well tell you. Soon as I saw what happened to the sea bell, I hurried to find Tom. While I was looking for him, I ran into Brad Marbeck, and I asked him about the light. I knew he'd been right behind Tom. He acted queer, and when I did see Tom, he got all excited. He begged me to leave town for my own sake and his. I told him he'd have a hard time without my testimony and Brad's, and he broke down and told me Brad was mixed up in some kind of deal with them Kelsos, and said he wasn't worried about himself, but about Celia, that's his wife, and the little girl. He said he didn't dare try and clear himself, though he knew right well what had happened. Captain Killian shrugged. What could I say? Stay and put Celia and the little girl in danger. Not likely I'd do that. And I couldn't pretend not to know anything, because I wanted to talk to Brad. The four nodded their understanding. So I packed up and got out. First I told Chick what to say. Told him to tell folks I'd been to the trawler next morning so they wouldn't connect my going with Tom's wreck. Was just the shifting of the light all you saw? Rick asked. That's all. I will say I knew the second light was a real one. I hadn't known the first one was real. But when Smuggler's light came on, I could see there was a difference. I figured the light was sort of dull because of the ground haze. There was some, you know. There's our evidence, Scotty said. Yes, Captain Mike leaned back in his seat. Only trouble is we can't use it without getting both Jim and Tom's family in danger. So I guess we're back where we started. But we can prove to the police the light was changed, Jerry began. If Captain Killian tells his story, he stopped. Now, that's no good, because we have no proof the Kelsos are mixed up in it, and they'd be able to carry out their threats. That's exactly right, Captain Killian said. Now, how about telling me how you found me, to Chick give me away? 
Not on purpose, Captain Mike assured him. Rick was trailing him when he telephoned you this morning, and he found out the number Chicken called. The rest was easy. I see. And what am I supposed to do now? I don't see how you can stay in that hotel, Captain Mike said a little distastefully. Captain Killian smiled. It is pretty bad, all right. You know, last time I spent a night in New York, I stayed there. It was right nice. There was a real pretty garden out back. How long ago was that? Rick queried. The fisherman hesitated. Oh, it must have been all of twenty-five years ago. I had some upset when I saw the police, but I'd already told Chick to call me there, so nothing but for to stay. Wish I could stay somewhere else, but it wouldn't be safe to go back to Seaford. Whiteside would be all right, Rick said. You could stay there. I'd rather, but are you sure it'd be safe? Jerry spoke up. Captain, I'm on the Whiteside morning record. I'll make a deal with you. Give us your story exclusively when the right time comes, and the paper will guarantee your safety. Sounds pretty good, Captain Killian admitted. But when is the right time going to come? Maybe never. Sooner than you think, Rick said quietly. Look, guys, there's only one way to crack this case. We know now we can't get Captain Tyler cleared unless the whole outfit is rounded up. So we'll just have to get busy and find the evidence we need. We'll start over again, and this time, we won't go wrong because we know what to look for and where to look. That's a fight and talk, Captain Mike chuckled happily. Scotty laughed. Do we dare put our heads inside the Seaford City Limit again after what we did to Carrots? He'll be waiting for us with a squad of thugs and that little popgun of his. The popgun, baby, but no thugs, Rick corrected. What will you bet he never even tells his father what happened to him? No bet there, Jerry said grinning. I'll bet the same thing. He put the car in gear. We may as well head back to Whiteside. First, though, we'll have to collect Captain Killian's baggage. The captain spoke his agreement. I'll take your offer, son. He shook his head. You know, I'm real surprised at Brad Marbeck. I knew he wasn't above turning a dishonest dollar, but I thought he had more sense than to go into smuggling. No matter how foolproof you think your setup is, if you start smuggling, you're bound to get caught sooner or later. In this case, Rick added hopefully, we'll try to make it sooner. <laughs>